Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the first installment of the Friday follow-up for Season 3. This is the Episode 301 follow-up. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. Right off the bat, I want to thank all of you for downloading Episode 301 and immediately engaging in our new case. We have had a ton of great response from that episode. We're already having listeners tracking down new information that we hadn't found previously, and people are starting to spread the word, and we've already made some new contacts. So thank you for your engagement, and keep up the momentum, and let's find that someone who knows something about who killed Kiao Gove. For those of you who are new listeners that just got on board with Season 3, first of all, I want to welcome you to the Truth and Justice movement and explain a little bit about how these things work. I know this is a review for a lot of you. But every Sunday, we drop our main episode with new case information. On Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we take calls from listeners with questions, comments, thoughts, or theories, and then Mike and I go through social media posts and answer more questions. These episodes drop on Fridays as the Friday follow-ups. So if you have a question, a comment, a thought, or a theory, you can either email that to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, you can tweet us at truthjusticepod, Or you can leave a comment on our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. And if you'd like to talk to me and Mike directly about your thoughts, you can call in on those Wednesday mornings. And that phone number is listed on our website, but it's 269-224-2833. All right, now that we've got the housekeeping out of the way, let's get started with the 301 follow-up. Okay, Bob, we just launched season three of the show, and there was a lot of social media out there about the production of the show, and we always enjoy a little constructive criticism and feedback on our latest episodes, so I want to pick your brain a little bit here. Okay. On Facebook, Ciamara Marchetti writes, I love the first episode. The levels of the music are a bit higher than the voiceover, and I had to rewind a few times. Other than that, the episode itself was easy to understand what's going on. My questions are, how old was Kirby when all this happened? If he was at an age where he should be in school, why wasn't he there? Did his father know he was home alone? Keep up the awesome work, guys. 
So first of all, let's talk about production because we had a couple other messages about that too. Dana on Twitter tweets, not sure whether I miss the simplicity of the old season one days or rejoice in the quality of season three. And on Facebook, Sarah Jean writes, hey Bob, thanks for all that you do. Just wanted to let you know that the levels were all over the place in the last show. I had to keep turning my volume up and down throughout. I was a music tech major in college, so I've been there. Keep up the good work. So we had a lot of positive and a little bit of negative about the music on our last episode. And since we are going through some transitions with the music right now, I thought maybe you could get into that a little bit. All right, first of all, thank you for your input, Siamara, Dana, and Sarah. And like Mike said, we are going through some transitions with the music right now. So like you said, the very beginning, way back in the Serial Dynasty days, first of all, we had no music, and then we had a little bit of music, and we had six or seven tracks to work with from our old music guy. Over the last couple of months, we've transitioned to using PutThemInASong.com and Shane Yoder to do our music, and Shane is actually writing custom scores for us. And I really love the music that Shane's putting together for us, but it's been a challenge for Mike and I to drop the music into the episode. Remember that I used to be a fire chief and Mike was a fireman. So a production like this is all new to us and we're learning as we go. And I was, for the most part, pretty happy with the way the music came out in this first episode. We did have a few people that were commenting on the intro where people were saying that they couldn't hear the sound bites that were dropped in. And that part actually was intentional. Those were just meant to be teasers. They were kind of supposed to leave you wondering, like, who was that or what did he say? So that part was on purpose. And as the season moves on, you're going to hear from all of those people in depth. As far as the rest of the scoring music, i finally thrown the towel in, and Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com, who does all of our music, has offered to custom score our episodes. And what that means is, we'll record the episode, Mike will edit it and piece it all together, and then it'll get sent over to Shane, and Shane will write custom music to go along with the episode and control all of the levels and the timings. Shane is actually a professional musician and does this stuff for a living, so I'm hoping that we'll have a much higher quality once this happens. And Shane is custom scoring our very first episode this Sunday. So definitely let me know what you all think about it after Sunday's episode drops. Okay, now what about Siamara's question about Kirby? Okay, first of all, Kirby was 18 years old at the time. And I realized after the fact that I never actually said that, you'd have had to done the math to actually figure that out. But Kirby was 18 years old, he had just graduated high school, and was getting ready to start college in the fall. And yes, Kirby's dad did know that he was home alone. Well, actually, he thought he was home with his mother. But Kirby didn't have school. Remember, this happened in July, so it was during summer break. So the way it played out was, Kirby was sleeping in that day. His mom always goes for a walk in the morning. And according to his dad's trial testimony, Kirby just assumed that his mom had went to the store or something because she wasn't home. He actually said in the trial testimony that Kirby must not have looked outside and seen the van sitting there. Kenneth, on the other hand, had went to work, his wife was alive and well when he left, and assumed that she took her walk and then afterward was sitting at home with Kirby. It wasn't until the police called a couple of hours later when they figured out something had happened. All right, and we also got a lot of people asking about Kiao's keys and how they ended up in the mailbox. On Twitter, Renee Clark tweets, I'm thinking it was someone who knew her routine. Was returning her keys a sign of remorse from the killer? Also on Twitter, Lori tweets, were there any of those grocery store type membership slash savings cards on her keychain? I have one for Kroger, a local grocery store, and it says on the back, if lost, drop in any mailbox. The keys go to Kroger, and then they return your keys to the address they have on file for you. And then we have Detectives Bipod on Twitter saying, any chance Kiao could have left her own keys in the letterbox so they weren't on her when she walked? Was it a set of keys? And then lastly, we have this email from Muriel. She says, were there any ID on the Gove's keys? 
Could she just have dropped them during her walk before she was attacked, i.e. away from the crime scene, and a passerby finding them just returned them? If there was no ID on the keys, the person who returned them had to know where she lived. Along with the overkill aspect of the crime, it seems to indicate a history between her and her attacker. So, lots of thoughts and theories about the keys, and these were just a few out of hundreds of responses we got. So what more can you tell us about the keys? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All righty. Well, thank you all for all of the questions we had about the keys and all the thoughts and theories. And like Mike said, those were just a few. So to get started, I want to read you directly from the trial testimony what Kenneth Gove had to say about the keys. Question. She would lock the house and leave and come home and use the keys to get back in the house, I presume. Answer. In fact, she did that morning. She didn't want to get our hardworking son out of bed, I guess, so she took the keys with her. Question. Did those keys or the house key she had with her that morning mysteriously appear in your mailbox sometime later on? Answer. They did. One week to the day. She was killed on a Thursday, and that next Thursday they did appear that morning. Question. Was there any note with the key? Answer. No, sir. Question. Was the key on any kind of chain or anything? Answer. It was on a ring. Question. Is that a ring she kept them on? Answer. Yes. Question. Have you ever gotten any information as to how those keys got into your mailbox or how they got returned to you? Answer. No, sir. I would love to know. Question. Do you know, did there, was there any effort made by the police to try and obtain fingerprints off the keys? Answer. No, there was not. Well, as far as I know, there wasn't. This little bit from the trial transcript is all we know from the trial about these keys. But it does answer a few of the questions for us, or at least one directly. As far as Kenneth Gove knows, no fingerprints were ever taken off of those keys, or were never even attempted to be taken off of the keys. I've also read through most of the police reports that we have access to right now. I'm still waiting for a records request from the Dallas Police Department, but from what I have now, I don't see any indication that the police even knew about these keys. However, like I said, there are reports that are still out there that we don't have, so it's possible that they did have the keys, but as you heard, as far as Kenneth knows, they were never dusted for prints. Now, these keys have been a hot topic of conversation here around the studio with Mike and I. It just doesn't make sense. A few people have suggested that maybe the keys were left in the mailbox by Kiao when she went for a walk, so she didn't have to carry them. That's a possibility that we've considered, but as you heard in the trial testimony, Kenneth seemed genuinely surprised when he found the key on Thursday. It's been suggested that maybe he didn't check the mail for a week, but again, he didn't say that the first time I checked the mail, the keys were in the mailbox. He said that they mysteriously appeared on that day, which would lead me to believe that most likely he had checked the mailbox previously. As far as any identifying information on those keys, 
All we can tell from the trial transcript is that the only thing on the keys was a ring. Now, of course, it is possible that there was something else on the ring that indicated where she lived, but again, I don't think there would be so much mystery surrounding the keys if that was the case. I would think that if there was some identifying information, that that would have come out in trial to help explain how the keys might have gotten into her mailbox. But all it says is that it's a mystery. So assuming that someone did indeed put those keys into the mailbox on that Thursday morning, now we have to ask ourselves, who did it and why? One suggestion that's been made by a lot of listeners is that maybe Kiao dropped the keys and someone picked them up and put them back. That's actually the theory that makes the most sense to me, that maybe a concerned neighbor found the keys, didn't want to have a discussion with Kenneth, so they just quietly put them back in the mailbox. But the problem with that theory is this. Where would the keys have been dropped? The police officer's testimony indicate that they searched all up and down the entire length of September Road on both sides of the fence and certainly scoured all around where the crime actually occurred, and they did not find these keys. And they were finding things like hairs, so they were looking very, very closely. So I don't think that they would have just missed the keys. It's also been suggested that maybe Kiao just dropped her keys before the attack somewhere along her walk. And we can't say that that's impossible, but it would certainly be a crazy coincidence that on the same morning that she was brutally murdered, she also happened to lose her keys on the other side of the school somewhere. It's not impossible, but it just seems unlikely. But when we consider all the facts that we have right now, we definitely can't rule out the idea that just some passerby, neighbor, friend, someone found the keys and dropped them off. But I think most likely what happened is that the killer did actually return the keys. So then we have to ask ourselves, if the killer is the one who returned the keys, why? Like Renee mentioned in her tweet, it would clearly indicate some type of remorse by the killer. It certainly is not something that's going to undo what had happened, and really wouldn't make much of a difference in the Goves' lives after Kenneth's wife and Kirby's mother had been killed. But I think that it's possible that it could be kind of a, this is the least I can do type of thing. And I think it also points towards someone who is probably inexperienced with the law, and maybe even a younger person. Anybody that knows anything about crime scene investigations, even back in the 90s, would know that putting those keys back in the mailbox, if the killer is indeed the one that put them back in the mailbox, is an incredibly risky move. Number one, you're risking leaving some trace evidence on the keys. And number two, you risk being seen putting the keys in the mailbox. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we get the word out about this case for anyone that lives in the South Dallas area or lived in the South Dallas area back in the early 90s. I've had a lot of listeners emailing in and tweeting and Facebooking, telling me they were from the area, and back around that time, it was a pretty close-knit neighborhood. Most people knew everyone, and just because of the layout with the open grounds of the school, it would be hard to do anything in that neighborhood without someone seeing you. I truly believe that someone knows something, and if we can find that person, we can solve this case. Right along those lines, we got this correspondence from Tammy, who actually grew up in the Pleasant Grove area. Hi, Bob. I was born and raised in Pleasant Grove, Dallas. I graduated from Samuel High School in 1986. Spruce was our big rival because we were so close. In fact, I lived one street within Samuel's boundaries. One street over, and I would have gone to Spruce. But I digress. I have a lot of classmates as friends on Facebook. Many of them may have already left Pleasant Grove as I did by 1991, but maybe some of them were still there. Can you post something on your Facebook page about asking for help from anyone who may know something? Then we could just share it on our pages. 
I think that's a great idea, Tammy. So for all of you listening, by the time this episode drops on Friday morning, I'm going to pin a post to the Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page for all of you to easily share. I think this is a great way to get the word out, especially as we move forward into the next couple of weeks, but I'm going to be giving some names out of people that I'm trying to locate. There are a lot of common names that have been hard to track down, but I think anybody who lived in that neighborhood or went to that high school could probably easily find these people for me. So look for that post on the Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page today, which is Friday. And like I said, I'll leave it pinned to the top so it stays on the top of our feed. Thanks, Tammy. And speaking of Facebook, here's a tweet for listeners who want to sleuth together. Amber Starr tweets, Hey guys, love the podcast. Just a thought, especially with the new case, maybe making a Facebook group so listeners could spitball ideas. I'd gladly admin it and post any case documents onto the group. Just a thought. I'd love to help in any way I can. Keep fighting the good fight. Well, Amber, there actually is a place to do just that. And I just realized when I heard this question that I've never talked about it on the show before. But there is a Truth and Justice Podcast Fans page on Facebook. And it's titled just that, Truth and Justice Podcast Fans. The page is relatively new. I think there's only a couple of hundred people on there now. But I think that will be the best place for everybody to get together to generate discussion about the case. It's a closed group. There are several people that are adminning it. So if you go to the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, just request permission to get into the group. Someone will approve you right away. I'm actually a member of the group, and so is Mike. So we interact in there sometimes too. So if you're one of the listeners that really want to get deep into the case and want to have other listeners to talk to about it, definitely go check out the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. Okay, Bob, we got a whole lot of questions and theories about the knife found in Kiev's hand, but I know you wanted to hold off on that until after Sunday's drop. So I just have one more email here for you from Sonny Levine. Sonny writes, Just listen to 301. Gotta say, the first thing that jumped out to me was the nature of the attack. Seems that it started from the back, and with it being in that area where she was known to walk, it's more than likely that the person or people who did it watched her for a while. Also, since it was out in the open, I have to think that the killer knew there wasn't much time, which makes me wonder if there were two people involved. Till next time, Sonny. That's one of the, and just one of the very strange things about this case. A lot of other listeners have also suggested that by Kia walking at the same time every day, that it would have been easier to get the upper hand on her because she had a known pattern of behavior. And all of that's true, but the big question is, why that day? After 16 years of walking around that block first thing in the morning every single day, whether someone knew her timing and her route or not, there still had to be a trigger to cause that attack to happen that morning. And personally, I don't think it was some drug-out premeditated attack because the location just doesn't make sense. There were other places around the school where Kiao could have been attacked that wasn't so out in the open, where the killer could flee easier. And as you're hearing a phone call that's going to come up in the second segment, that's one of the reasons why I believe that the killer had someone else with them in a car. If this was planned and premeditated, and there was one killer on foot, I think that they would attack Kiao further to the north, where there's some thicker woods that leads into a neighborhood. This would provide some cover where the killer could have killed her and then taken off running and disappeared into a neighborhood. But of all the locations for the attack to have occurred, where Kiao was actually killed was literally the most unlikely spot. So with what we know right now, my personal opinion is, if this was a premeditated attack, then there definitely were two people involved in a vehicle. And if it wasn't a premeditated attack, or if the killer was alone and on foot, 
then the attack was not premeditated at all. But we'll figure out more as we move along with the case and get more information. So thanks, Sonny. That was a great question. All right, Bob, that's going to do it for social media this week. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get right into the calls. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, I am on the air with Alice from Florida. How are you doing today, Alice? I'm doing well, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. And Mike says you have a question about gangs. Yes. I was listening to the end of the episode, and you were going over all of the injuries that Tiao sustained. And the first thing that popped into my head was that it sounded like possibly a gang initiation of a new and probably relatively young gang recruit. And the reason I thought that was because the wounds, like the wound to her head, which just makes no sense, and the overkill of it to me seemed like someone young and inexperienced and someone that was trying to prove a point. And not necessarily a personal one, because her body was out in the open, and to me it didn't seem like a personal grudge. It seemed like someone that was trying to just get the job done and make a point and make a statement for themselves personally, not necessarily directed at her. Now, I don't know any of the upcoming episodes or what else you found out, but to me, that was just something that seemed like a possibility, and I wanted to know what you thought. Well, I think that it's a really, really good thought, actually. The whole crime doesn't make sense, and I'm going to be putting up, we haven't got the case documents up yet. They should be uploading today, which is actually Wednesday. Uh, This won't drop till Friday, so by the time everyone hears this, they should be up on the new website. But I want to put in an overhead view, an aerial shot of the crime scene, and you'll see just how insane this is. This murder happened out in the complete wide open. I've considered exactly what you just said, that it could be some type of gang initiation. Like you said, it was, it was very quick. It was brutal. Uh-huh. It was overkill. It was disorganized. And the other thing that makes me think that it could be uh, gang-related or something like that is I don't believe that the person that killed Kiao would have been on foot. And you'll see that when you uh-huh. s- when you see the, the aerial photos of the crime scene where it's at. I mean, it could not be any more wide open. So if, if someone was on foot and they grabbed Kiao right there and stabbed her to death and then took off running, it was right in the center of the block. So they're going to have to run a long ways, hundreds and hundreds of yards, out in the wide open right after committing this murder. Personally, I think a more likely scenario is that a car pulled up, one person jumped Mm -hmm. out of the car, stabbed her to death, jumped back in the car, and took off. Because Danny Stanberry, the guy that found Kiao's body, you know, he says he, he never heard any screaming. He let his dogs out. They barked. He looked, and she was already laying there. 
it just happened really, really fast. And when he got there, she was still alive. And she had, I have to go back to the ME's report to verify exactly, but I want to say off the top of my head, four or five deep stab wounds to her lungs, one to her liver. I mean, she was she was stabbed, another one to her abdomen. She was stabbed all over the place. So she would have passed away very, very quickly. And she was still alive when he got there. So, and he didn't see somebody, you know, sprinting across the field, running away from her. Right. He just only saw her there. So it's funny you say that because I was just telling Mike yesterday that to me, like a gang initiation makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Just a just a senseless killing with no apparent motive where they have to kill somebody to be initiated into the gang. And so they just grab some random person and do it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and my thought was that, I was like, honestly, I hope it's not the case, because I don't know where we go from there, unless we can directly tie someone with some kind of affiliation to her and her family, because another reason I thought it might have been gang-related and the age of the person was because if she worked at the high school, or I wasn't sure of her son's age at the time, but the fact that the keys were returned to the mailbox, to me, felt like the most personal element. Right. That it was someone who saw her at the school or someone who knew her son and they were returning that as kind of like a, not necessarily an I'm sorry, but as a way of kind of somewhat clearing their conscience. It was like, okay, I had this. I don't want it. I'm going to put it back where it belongs. It's just throwing it in the trash. So I thought possibly someone who saw her at the school or possibly someone who knew her family through her son that also had gang ties or eventually had gang ties. Yeah, and it could be any young person that lived in the neighborhood there. You know, that neighborhood at that time, gangs were starting to move in. It could have been, mm-hmm. you know, the neighbor boy that was involved. With mm-hmm. it. Kirby, by the way, her son was 18 years old at the time of the murder. Okay. Yep, I realized after okay. I got a bunch of emails about that and, and tweets about it because you'd had it done math from what I explained, you know, when exactly. they moved yeah, in I didn't and all that. that. He was 18 years old. He had just graduated. It was the summer between him graduating high school and getting ready to go off to college. But I think okay. all those are solid theories. And, and you're right, it is, it is a little concerning if it was gang-related because it's going to be more difficult to get someone to talk. But then, again, if you have just a young person that gets into a gang and then maybe straightens their life out or something. The thing is, someone knows something. And I don't believe mm-hmm. that no one in that neighborhood saw anything happen. And actually we have, and we're going to have right. in future episodes, there actually was someone that saw something that really probably fits into this case. There was also another murder right in that same neighborhood less than a month away, another brutal, senseless murder that we'll be oh, getting wow. into as we move forward with the case. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your work, Bob. I'm so excited I got through. I told my sister because she listens as well. She's actually in Chicago. So we call and like, this is what we talk about. So I will let her know that I got through to Bob because <laughs> she's at work and I'm at home. <laughs> right. Well, we're glad you got through. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, Bob. I really appreciate it. Love the show. Thank you so much. And you have a great day, Alice. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. All right. And she's done it again. Jennifer from New York has made it through the phone lines. How are you doing today, Jennifer? I'm great, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. So Mike says you have a question about Keo's husband, Kenneth. Yeah, I'm just curious as to whether or not he's still alive. He is, in fact, not still alive, which was really sad to find out because he could have been the gatekeeper to a lot of information. Uh, He passed away, I think, about four years ago. I have, in fact, made contact and spoken to Kiao's son, Kirby. He's kind of open to what we're doing and is possibly going to be doing an interview with us. But so we we do have that contact with her son, Kirby, to get some information about Kiao and about the case. But unfortunately, the one that had the most information, her husband, has passed away. 
Yeah, I was worried about that. I was trying to calculate in my mind how old he might actually be at this point. I didn't think he was, but I just thought I'd check. Yep, he is He is not. And thank you so much for the question, Jennifer. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Yep, have a great day. All right, for our last call of the day, we have Betty Western Skyping in all the way from the UK. And for any of you listeners that are overseas that don't want to make an expensive phone call, sometimes if you send us an email ahead of time, we can set this up where we can get a Skype call like this in. So, Betty, thank you so much for calling in. How's things going in the UK today? Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a typically English day. Very dull and, and gray and, and wet. Oh, well, it's exactly <laughs> the same here in Michigan. So we're on the oh, same page today. <laughs> good. So uh, you have a couple of questions for us. So let's get right into your questions. Okay. So I, I saw the trailer ahead of last Sunday's episode, and I think I clicked to YouTube. And right at the beginning of the trailer, there's a still photograph uh, with a guy standing with two women, one either side of him. And I looked to see if, if one was as Kiao, and I couldn't tell. So I just wanted to ask you, who were the people featured in that photograph? Okay, that photograph you're talking about, the person in the middle, that is Jesse Eldridge. It was a photo that was taken in prison, and the, the ladies on either side of him, the one on his right is actually his wife, Patricia, and the lady on the left is his daughter, Nicole. Oh, that's great. And when was that taken? That was taken, I think, about three or four years ago. All right, lovely. Well, that was just my quickie question. Okay. My harder one, and you can go on as long as you want on this one, because I'm sure tons of people would want to know. So this case, I appreciate, came to you from Texas Innocence Project. And like any podcast listener, I guess everybody else does the same as me. As soon as the name of the accused or victim is named, yeah, the first thing I do is, is Google and try to find out as much information as I can. I've, I've only got access to the internet. Obviously, I, I can't go rooting around local records because I'm not over there with you. So I wondered how you start your search when a new case is brought to you, if you're, if you're without information and, and any tips you've got for people about online searching. Okay, well, that's actually a great question, and part of the reason for that is something that I do differently than a lot of other uh, shows, and, uh, and, and Undisclosed does something very similar, is what I like to do is to take the cases that no one knows about. The main reason for that is, for example, like uh, Stephen Avery with Making a Murderer. A lot yeah. of people wanted me to jump on and do a season about Stephen Avery. But my issue with that is Stephen Avery's case is already blown up through the public, and he already has a ton of support and a lot of people helping and funding for everything he's doing. And for me, I just when I decided to do this full time, one of the things that I was really focused on is I want to help the people that don't have help. And so to, sure. to take the cases for the people who have been forgotten about, the people that just got shuffled through the system and no one was there to help them and they're just going to rot away in prison for the rest of their life if we don't do anything. Now, right. the downside to that is you're not going to Google Jesse Eldridge or Kiao Gove and find really anything right now. Well, I, exactly what happened. I, I did that, first of all, and I could find nothing about either of these people. Um, not a news story. I know it's 25 years ago, but there was no uh, archived news articles or, or anything. So here I am with a question. Right. Part of the reason for that is because of the time. Like you said, this was 1991. Yeah. Like the Internet wasn't a thing back then. And I've even like contacted the local news media, the local television station, and asked if they had archives for, I'm sure there was a news story when this happened. And they said, yes, we do. And I said, can I get a copy of it? And they said, no, you can't. 
so th- there was nothing there. But there are things out there. And so what happens is when we start a new case like this is we start to build Google. You know, right now, if you yeah. go and Google Edward Eights, your page is going to be filled up with stuff. Whereas a year ago, you might have found one or two articles here and there about it. Because people are taking like old newspaper articles and scanning them in and they're putting stuff on YouTube and they're, people are finding old news reports, things like that. So that's what we're hoping right. is going to happen here. So uh, before I get into what I've done, one thing that already we found some traction with by putting the case out there and you know having a couple hundred thousand people jump on board and listen to it is we've already found a news article. Katina Carter, I believe, is the one that found it uh, as a listener. And I hope I got that right because I don't have it in front of me. And she posted on Twitter or Facebook, but she found an article where the Dallas Observer, and I will, I'll, I'll post this link. I think I've retweeted it already once or twice, but it was an indirect article. So it wasn't an article about Keow's death or about Jesse Eldridge. Mm-hmm. It was an article about the Dallas Cold Case Squad. And so in this article about the Dallas Cold Case Squad, at the bottom of it, it tells a story about how, Je- well, it tells a version of a story about how Jesse mm-hmm. Eldridge was caught. The whole article is the cold case squad bragging about how they picked up all these old cases and they're solving them one after another. And they're and uh, detective D.A. Watts, Don Watts is the detective that worked uh, Jesse's case when it was a cold case, is bragging about how he is a master interrogator and he's really good at getting, quote, reluctant witnesses to talk, which is exactly what happened in Jesse's case. A, uh, again, air quotes, reluctant witness finally came forward with an answer. So so we're already starting to find a little bit of traction with that. And again, I'll make sure on Friday when this drops that I'll tweet that out again so people can find it. But I will I will caution you if you read the Dallas Observer article that it's well, basically it's bullshit. I mean, the the way it was spun (laughs) is I mean, I have the police files. I know what will actually happen compared to there. But there was some information in that article that we didn't know. Now, as Uh far as how I get started, and it's a way that you could, but it's expensive and time-consuming. Luckily, this case, I had a little bit of a head start because it was brought to me by the Innocence Project. So they already had the trial transcripts is basically all they had and one of the forensic reports. But immediately, a couple of months ago, I fired off open records requests to the Dallas DA's office. I filed off open records requests to the Dallas Police Department. I have not gotten that one back yet. I was supposed to have received it last week. It hasn't come in yet. And so I start breaking them down. Now, unfortunately for you, in order the way that I you know produce the show is each week I break down piece by piece by piece what's happening. And so I release those documents as we're covering them. So in part of that is for me making sure everybody realizes that I'm verifying everything everything I'm telling you came from an actual file. One thing that I don't like with some of the other shows where they'll, they'll crop a little line out of a transcript and say, see, this is where it came from. What I'll do, so like this last week, and I it, this should be up today, which is Wednesday, the documents from episode 301 is, so most of that information came from Kiao's husband, Kenneth Gove's testimony, and Officer Marco's testimony, and Greg Clark's testimony. So I will put their entire testimonies up on the website. Because the beauty of the crowdsourcing is that people like you that are really into it, that are that are going back and researching, when you go through that transcript, you may find things that I've missed or make connections mm. that make more sense. So as the case builds along, there'll be more and more. It'll be just like Edward Eight's case. By the, by the time we're done with this case, there'll be thousands of pages of documents up on the website that will start coming up in, in Google searches for people. So the people that get involved with the case six months from now and started episode 301, they'll have all kinds of stuff to pick from. Yeah. 
Great. You know, it's far too early to be theorising and coming up with things. Although I will say, I wondered if anti sort of anti-Vietnamese, although she was a lady from Thailand, whether that sentiment was prevalent at the time, still in the early 90s. So it's kind of one, I I wasn't sure where you were going with the Cain and Abel line. So I was just thinking of different things. But um, it's an interesting one. And, you know, whether you give us it piecemeal or however, I know you'll be breaking it down. And and that's what people who listen to you enjoy so much. So, So keep up with the good work. Thank you so much, Betty. And it was great to hear from you again. I actually, for your listeners, I actually got to meet Betty last year at the Night for Justice Gala. So it was great to hear from you again, Betty. It was good to talk to you again, Bob. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. That sounds great. Have a great day. And yourself. Cheerio. Bye, Mike. Bye. Bye, Bob. (laughs) Bye. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for the Friday follow-up today. As always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. What you heard on the show today is just a tiny fraction of all the social media and emails we've gotten in over the last week. And I'm really looking forward to see where this case goes from here. At this point, we only have a tiny piece of the puzzle. We've just heard about what happened on that fateful day on July 25th, 1991. But starting on Sunday, we'll get into what happened in the days, months, and years following. And that is where the journey really begins. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. All of the music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our logo art for the follow-up episodes was created by Amanda Meyer at WillowPhotoAndDesign.com. And I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Desiree Dunn, and Sarah Mueller for transcribing all the episodes. And if you haven't been to our website recently, truthandjusticepod.com, go check it out. Because Chris Brinkley of sylviaconsultants.com has completely redone our website. And most of the transcripts for previous episodes are already up on the site. And Chris is adding more daily. Also on our website, you can review case documents from all of our cases. And you can get the mailing addresses for Jesse, Ed, and Kenny if you want to send them a letter in prison. And I know personally that they all love to get those letters at mail call. So keep following along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. Send in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at TruthAndJusticePod.com or follow along on our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. And don't forget about the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page where you can engage with other listeners to talk about the case. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.